Good afternoon and welcome to Build Up or Build Out, Solving the Housing Crisis. As a former Cato employee, it's nice to be with you again, if only remotely. My name is Vanessa Brown Calder. I'm currently Deputy Director of the Joint Economic Committee and I'll be moderating the conversation today. Because of where I work, it's important that I note at the outset that I'm not speaking on behalf of the JEC or the Chairman, but simply speaking on my own behalf. Today, we are debating how to solve the housing crisis. As many in our audience will know, in recent years, housing prices have climbed, creating housing crises in some American cities with sometimes tragic consequences for lives and for livelihoods. Of course, the current pandemic is exacerbating housing affordability challenges for households across America, with the BLS reporting 13% unemployment in May and census data reporting that half of American adults are currently living in households that have experienced employment income loss since March. It seems safe to say that any future economic recovery will be more even if housing is more affordable and available near the job opportunities and amenities people desire and need to get back on their feet. Today's panelists will propose various regulatory, deregulatory, I should say, solutions to address this issue. And they will suggest that cities either deregulate to build up at the urban core, deregulate to build out on the urban fringe, or do both. Although they will undoubtedly disagree, there is at least one area of agreement. They each believe that government regulations are in some way negatively affecting American housing development. Today, we will first hear from Scott Beyer, who is the founder and owner of Market Urbanism Report, a think tank dedicated to free market urban policy reform. He writes columns for Governing Magazine, HousingOnline.com, and the Independent Institute. Mr. Beyer will be followed by Randall O'Toole, who is a senior fellow with the Cato Institute, specializing in land use and transportation issues. He has written numerous policy papers about housing, as well as a book, American Nightmare, How Government Undermines the Dream of Homeownership. Mr. O'Toole will then be followed by Scott Lincecombe, who is an attorney, Cato Institute adjunct scholar, and visiting lecturer at Duke University. Mr. Lincecombe specializes in international trade and frequently writes on law and economics for various publications. The format will be as follows. Each participant will share his view in around 12 minutes, and that will be followed by two to three minute rebuttals, which will be followed by audience questions. If you have a question that you'd like to ask, it's very simple to do so via Slido, which you'll find on this event's webpage on Cato's website. If you're addressing the question to a single person, please identify the person you're intending to ask by name at the beginning of your comment. Since we have two Scots today, we'll be referring to everyone by their last names for convenience. Finally, for those tweeting or following along on Twitter, the hashtag we're using is CatoEvents. I'll now turn the time over to Mr. Beyer to get us started. The Cato Institute for inviting me to have this uh, nice debate and discussion. So I think before we talk about specific regulations, the main thing I would want to, the main disclaimer I would want to communicate just offhand is that uh, I am a libertarian. And so I, my general attitude of cities is that they should have less regulation and less planning. And so when we're talking about uh, what regulations will, will solve the housing crisis and make 
urban housing less expensive, I generally think all of them will. And so I'm against regulations against density, regulations against sprawl, and even regulations that outlaw rural settlement patterns. I generally would just like to see a less regulatory state overall. Now, with that said, if I had to choose which regulations that I think are the most costly to society, I would still stick with anti-density regulations. And I'm going to go into a slideshow that explains some of my reasons for thinking this. Not all of them have to do with affordable housing per se, but it's they have to do with what I see as the broad benefits that come from having urban density. So I'll go ahead and share my, my slideshow. And I think the first benefit of urban density are environmental. So I've, I've, I've uh, gone through some different studies that back these claims, and there is quite a vast literature showing that, that urban density has environmental benefits over suburban sprawl. And I think what's really going on there is that when people settle more densely, they are less likely to use their automobile uh, and get around by foot and mass transit, which has environmental benefits. And they're also more likely to share utilities, share walls, and just generally share um, any, any number of things that otherwise would have environmental impact. I think that the second benefit of urban density is fiscal solvency. So there is quite a bit of literature, both in academia and in the larger blogosphere, finding that on a per parcel basis, when parcels are allowed to be built more densely, they generate more tax revenue. In that when you uh, when you when when parcels are built in a more sprawling fashion, you have more you have less heads over the same set amount of infrastructure. And so there's a certain cost of sprawl that is associated with that that isn't necessarily associated with urban density. But I think a third main benefit of urban density, and this is the big one, is economic productivity. There is quite a lot of literature out there showing that when humans are allowed to agglomerate in major metropolitan areas, and particularly in dense areas, there is quite a lot of economic productivity that comes both in uh, higher earnings per GDP, um, per cap higher, higher per capita GDP, higher per capita income and household income, more innovation, uh, more clusterings of, of different businesses that enable scaling and scalability issues and advantages that don't necessarily germinate when you have dispersed settlement patterns or suburban sprawl. So I see urban density as generally a very beneficial uh, social model for these three reasons, environmental, fiscal sustainability, and economic productivity. And if I were to isolate on one example in the United States, I would say Manhattan. So here you have a you have effectively an island that has very limited square mileage, and yet it is more economically productive than just about any amount of any similar amount of square mileage that you might find in a sunbelt sprawl style settlement pattern. There is a massive amount of economic productivity that is based in New York City, and specifically Manhattan. So. If you were to look at the higher economic productivity in Metro New York City, as you see, uh, 
78,000 median household income of 78,000 compared to the national median of 62,000. Metro NYC labor productivity per worker is 147,000 compared to the national labor productivity worker, which is 113,000. And I think if you were to compare, it's a little bit harder to find comparisons between Manhattan specifically and the US median. But I think if you were to look at Manhattan and, and compare the economic product productivity to the entire United States, you're getting vastly more. And that is because of the, of the density and the general concentration of services that has been placed in Manhattan. So why do I think that, excuse me, um, why do I think that anti-density regulations are bad? Because I think that the market has shown that we would have a lot more Manhattans if we simply deregulated. So there are probably 10 to 12 cities that are sprawling at this point, but there, there is quite a market demand and you can see it in the price signals uh, of the land and of the housing there that if they were deregulated, they would be a lot denser. And so it begs the question of, if you have a, if you have a situation like Manhattan that is clearly a good social model in several in many different ways, why would we outlaw that across the United States? And yet we have. Um, we uh, and I could use some specific examples. So I think something like downtown San Francisco, downtown Los Angeles, and downtown Seattle would all be examples of cities that would become dramatically more dense and would quote unquote become Manhattanized if they were deregulated. And so the fact that regulations exist to effectively prevent this built model is a really bad thing. In fact, I wrote a column the other day saying that I think it is the worst domestic policy failure in the entire United States. This idea that we could have more Manhattan style urbanism patterns around the United States that would have very top notch economic productivity. And yet we effectively outlaw that. I think those regulations need to go. Now, as far as the, the, uh, the debate of today, how do we have housing affordability in the United States? I think it's a little bit more complex. So if we were to allow more Manhattans, would US cities necessarily become affordable? Now, this is one point where I might be willing to concede to Randall a little bit in the sense that when you build single family housing, there's less fixed costs, both in the land and in the cost of building single family sprawl. And so it might be that that type of development is always a little bit, is always going to be cheaper than say really dense development in Manhattan. But I don't view that as an argument per se of trying to outlaw or prevent Manhattan from happening. Um, I think that there are still, there are still affordability benefits of allowing dense urbanism. And I'm, and I'm generally just prone to say that we should deregulate all land and we should allow as much housing as possible. And even if the dense housing ends up being more expensive than the sprawl housing, it's still having the effect of reducing the overall prices. And the reason that I believe that is because I believe in the concept of filtering, which is that if you build new housing, even dense housing, even expensive housing, it's still going to allow 
the filtering down of older, less expensive units and, and that are going to be affordable to lower income groups. So I think an example of where we see something like that happen would be a place like Houston. Houston has a lot of sprawl. Houston has a lot of, of missing middle density, and it even has quite a number of high rises. Houston is frequently number one in multifamily housing construction uh, in the entire United States year after year. So it, it has quite a bit of density, but I think the added density makes the sprawl less, less expensive, just as the sprawl makes the density less expensive. And so you have a, an organic filtering process that enables uh, housing to be affordable all across the metro area. Now, in conclusion, I, I would say that, like I said before, I am for reducing the amount of regulations all across the board. A combination of I'm against anti-sprawl regulations and I'm against anti-density regulations. And I also bring a certain amount of uh, humility in the process in the sense that if we were to allow this open market in this less regulated uh, growth paradigm, I can't really say that I know how cities would be uh, organized or how they would be developed. And it would be really tough to say which type of housing would be more or less affordable. I don't think any of us really know that. But the main point that I want to that I want to communicate is that I'm generally just for deregulating everything and letting the market work and letting consumers locate in metro areas as they see fit. So this idea of just loosening all the regs um, would is something that I think most libertarians would agree with. Now, I'm unclear whether or not Randall agrees with that because I've read his uh, work for some time now, and it seems to me that he is very adamant about abolishing regulations that prevent sprawl. But I don't know as if I've ever heard him really wholeheartedly say that he wants to reduce anti-infill regulations. It seems that whenever politicians try to advance that idea, he has he generally writes pretty negatively about that, and he frames it as something that amounts to government engineering, which I don't agree with that. And then recently in a, in a uh, debate that, or, or in a documentary where we were both featured in, he said that if infill regulations were to be abolished, they should be re replaced with deed restrictions. And so I'd like to hear a little bit more from Randall about what he means from that, because if he's talking about the Houston model of deed res restrictions, I still don't view that as libertarian. That's a, that is a scenario where the city has decided to authorize and subsidize private deeds for, neighbor, for city neighborhoods. So it still strikes me as a form of government regulation and something that would be very, just as expensive as zoning in blocking a very economically productive, dense style of development. Thank you. Well, thank you, Scott. This is Randall O'Toole, and uh, I've always enjoyed Tyre and debating him and working with him. Uh, we work together on a lot of things, but we don't quite agree on everything. Uh, I first want to apologize because I live in a low-density area, and uh, the powers that be haven't seen fit to bring me high-speed internet connections, so I hope you'll be able to see my slideshow, uh, even if you can't see my 
animated face when uh, the slideshow is over. Well, I want to start out with this slide of uh, San Francisco. Every housing article you'll read about the San Francisco housing market will have a picture like this showing these old Victorian houses that are called painted ladies. And the implication in a lot of the articles that it, if it weren't for the selfish desires of people living in single family neighborhoods like this one, they'd be able to build a lot more multifamily housing. Housing would be a lot more affordable. What they don't say is that right next to those painted ladies is a gigantic seven-story multifamily building. And if you could look behind that building, you'd find more multifamily buildings. In fact, except for those painted ladies, almost all the housing in this neighborhood is multifamily. And uh, the question is, if density is so good, if multifamily housing is so good, then why is San Francisco the least affordable major housing market in the United States? I'm going to try to answer that question as well as Scott's questions in the course of this presentation. The first thing I want to say is there is no pent up demand for housing, for, for dense housing in this country. Uh, there's no pent up demand for people living in Manhattans. A uh, 2018 Gallup poll found that 40% of the people who live in big dense cities wish they live somewhere else. Whereas the percentage of people who wish they live in suburbs and low density suburbs and rural areas is greater than the number who actually live there. So if there's a pent up demand, it's for low density housing, not high density housing. We can see that that's just not just the results of a poll, but the results of how people actually live between 2010 and 2018. Uh, in the 50 largest urban areas in the United States, central cities grew by 3 million, and the suburbs of those central cities grew by 14 million. So almost a five to one ratio of growth in low density versus high density. Now, Scott might say, well, people were forced to because of the density restrictions in the cities. People were forced to live in the suburbs. Well, look at Houston. Houston has no density restrictions. You can build in a lot of places in Houston. You can build high density in a lot of places. And yet the city of Houston grew by only one fifth as much as Houston suburbs. So people in Houston as well as elsewhere are interested in living in low density areas. And look at these cities, Baltimore, St. Louis, other cities, the central cities actually lost population even as their suburbs grew by much more than the loss in the central cities. What that says is, there were vacancies left behind when people moved out and there wasn't anybody moving in to fill those vacancies. There's no pent up demand to live in dense central cities. Now it's argued that uh, single family zoning has made housing expensive. Well, let's look at a map of all the states that authorized single family zoning in 2018. And I could have picked 2010, 1960, basically any year until last year when Oregon deauthorized single family zoning. Uh, and what we see is everywhere allows single family zoning, but only some places are expensive. One way we measure housing affordability is by comparing the median home price divided by the median family income. That's called the volume to income ratio. The highest volume to income ratios are in coastal states, California, Oregon, Washington, Hawaii, uh, Florida, uh, Virginia, 
And these high volume to income ratios do not correlate with single family zoning because, I mean, Texas is the fastest growing state. They have single family zoning and yet they have low volume to income ratios. North Carolina is a fast growing state. They have single family zoning, but they have low volume to income ratios. Instead, what the high volume to value to income ratios uh, correlate with are growth management policies such as urban growth boundaries. Portland drew an urban growth boundary in about 1980. Uh, the population has grown by 50% since then. They've added about 6% to the boundary. Instead, they're trying to rezone neighborhoods inside the boundary to higher densities to accommodate demand. It's not working because people don't want to live in high densities. And so housing prices have gone, gotten high. San Jose drew an urban growth boundary in 1974. It has never expanded the boundary. And as a result, uh, with the increase in de desirability of living in Han Valley, housing prices have grown by five times since then uh, compared to uh, income. So there's a value to income ratio that's in San Jose than in places that don't have urban growth boundaries. If we look at a map of what states authorize growth management, it turns out it's those same coastal states that have high housing prices. There's almost a one-to-one -one correlation between growth management, that is regulation of rural development outside the cities and high housing prices. If you limit the amount of land available for so-called sprawl, then you get high housing prices, not single family zoning. That isn't what causes it. Uh, Okay, so we've got high housing prices, and Scott's argument is, well, if we get rid of single-family zoning, that'll make housing more affordable because people will be denser and there'll be a trickle-down effect. I'm afraid that doesn't work that way. First of all, once you've got growth management, you've made land really, really expensive. So you have to build many times more units per acre to be able to get the land cost per housing unit down to be what it is in places like Dallas and Raleigh and Atlanta that don't have growth management. That means you have to build mid-rise or high-rise housing, but guess what? Mid-rise housing, such as four, five, and six-story housing, cost two to five, two to three times as much per square foot as, as low-density housing. High-rise housing costs seven to five to seven times as much per square foot as uh, uh, low-density housing. So we've you're in the position where you're saying that you're going to make housing more affordable by building, building, building housing that's more expensive than any housing you've already got. You're not going to get a trickle-down effect because to build this housing, you have to tear out existing low-density housing that's more affordable. So you're not going to have more affordable housing by building denser. This is a low-density area. In fact, this represents the average density of urban areas in the United States, about 2,400 people per square mile, the value to income ratio, that is the medium home price divided by the median family income is somewhere between two and three in these kinds of urban areas. We look at San Francisco, density 17,000 people per square mile in the city, uh, in the urban area, it's almost 7,000 people per square mile, almost three times as great as the average urban area in this country. The value to income ratio is nine. Uh, that means that Basically, it means that you can't afford to buy a house there. Uh, 
really almost no one can afford to buy a house when the value to income ratio is nine. If you want real density, Hong Kong, 70,000 people per square mile, value to income ratio is almost 20. It's the uh, least affordable urban area in the English speaking world, uh, and it's the densest. So there's a clear correlation between density and unaffordability. If you look at the, these are about 300 urban areas in the United States, and higher density means less affordability. It means higher value to income ratios. So building denser does not make it more affordable. Now, Scott asked, why am I not in favor of getting rid of density regulations? I am in favor of getting rid of growth management regulations. The answer is that property rights are a bundle of sticks. It's a popular uh, analogy for property rights. And one possible stick in that bundle is a stick that says, I'm willing to uh, give up the right to develop my home to higher densities, provided all of my neighbors give up the right to develop their homes to higher densities too. Protective covenant or the zoning rule, the single family zoning rule that represents people who are willing to give up their right in exchange for everybody else giving up their right. In other words, it's the right to live in a single family neighborhood. Before zoning, before protective covenants, urban home ownership rates were very, about 25% of urban residents owned their own homes. And it wasn't because housing was expensive. In fact, housing was cheap. It was so cheap that working class families were more likely to own their own homes than middle class families. That's because they saw homes as being something they could use to earn a second income. Middle-class families weren't interested in that. They were interested in homes as a unit of value. They didn't want industry or apartments or something else moving next door. And so uh, we created zoning to protect those homes from uh, uh, a loss of value. And as soon as we created zoning, home ownership rates shot way up. This is William Fischel, who's an expert on zoning. Uh, and he said at a previous Cato Policy Forum that zoning's purpose was to protect residential areas, single family neighborhoods from devaluation by competing or conflicting uses. So when we say we're gonna build a development like this in a single family neighborhood, or one like this in a single family neighborhood, or one like this in a single family neighborhood, all of which have been built in single family neighborhoods in Portland, Oregon, we're putting stress on the infrastructure. We're adding congestion and we're adding crime, not because the people who live in these developments are criminals, but because as uh, architect Oscar Newman observed many years ago and documented uh, through uh, detailed research, uh, when you have lots of common areas, which you have in multifamily units, you're going to have more crime than you have lots of private land, which you have in single family neighborhoods. And so uh, he showed that multifamily housing created generated more crime, not because the people who live in them are criminals, but just because of their urban design. So residents of single family neighborhoods have good reasons to want to have the right to live in single family neighborhoods. Now, I like the Houston model. Houston says, if you don't have any covenants, you're not gonna get zoning, but you can petition your neighbors. And if 75% of them agree, they, they will write covenants for you uh, or you can write covenants 
and adopt them and they'll apply to your neighborhood. So you can create your own little zoning plan and you can change it when your neighbors want to with 75% of the approval of your neighbors. I like that kind of a system. If we want to get rid of single family zoning and replace it with that, I don't have any objection. If you just want to rezone every single family neighborhood for multifamily housing, I object because I think you're intruding on people's property rights, their rights to live in single family neighborhoods, and you're doing it without improving the affordability of the urban area. All you're doing is taking away people's right to live in a single family neighborhood. Well, that's my presentation. Uh, I'll be interested in hearing what our other Scott has to say. Thanks, Randall. Um, <clears throat> so I'm, I'm going to take the very boring view, um, which is the middle ground of building really everywhere. Um, you know, I my presentation is going to be a little bit different in that I instead of really taking a position, I'm, I'm just going to run through some of the literature um, and some of the views um, on some of the stresses on on housing costs in the United States, whether it be in the form of land use regulations um, or uh, in in the form of other things that that bid up construction costs and other uh, the cost to build. Um, really, the goal being that all of these things need to be reformed, regardless of whether they're in the cities or in the suburbs. Now, the, the a bit of this is personal for me, having uh, abandoned Washington D.C. a decade ago, in large part due to the high housing costs. And then uh, moving to Raleigh, North Carolina, which was actually in Randall's presentation quite uh, appropriately, which has a far better uh, cost of living where I could uh, more easily raise a family and, and enjoy life. Um, also, I love college sports and the ACC, so that was a nice bonus. So um, let me uh, begin my presentation here. Um, and so as you can see, my mine is just about just building. Um, I think it's first to kind of understand what we mean by land use regulation. Maybe this is the, the college professor in me showing, but um, there are all sorts of types of, of land use regulation, whether it be uh, use regulation, density regulation, design regulation, preservation reg regulation, process or quality. And I think all of these things, not merely uh, single family zoning, are, are what we mean when we talk about land use regulation and why they can affect costs. Um, I should note that uh, I'm sucking up to our moderator here by stealing some of Vanessa's pr prior research. Um, and that, that actually is from a paper of hers that I'll actually be citing again in a second. Um, but we see here common examples of this. Well, of course, limiting the type of housing, but also limiting height and lot size or home appearance, uh, delays in the variance approval process, the permitting process and the timing of those processes, the imposition of development fees or open space requirements, um, and then uh, also the involvement of outside involvement and lobbying when it comes to new developments. Here in Raleigh, for example, we used to have these community boards that were unelected members of the community that had um, quite significant power over the ability of new developments to build uh, in certain areas. Um, all of these things, the literature shows, can affect um, are, can affect costs and housing costs. So. I think it's also important to understand that that it's really unquestioned that land use regulation has been increasing. So a very recent paper, an updated version of the Wharton Residential Land Use Regulatory Index, 
it's a quite a mouthful, shows that in almost every region, you're seeing an increasing regulation, an increased number of land use regulations in place. Um, and it's, of course, far more significant in these large coastal cities and large cities generally, which I think is, again, an important point that it's not merely about regions, not merely about states, but it's particularly an issue in cities. Um, I think anecdotal evidence is also useful here. Here we see the number of housing permits issued per capita. You can see quite plainly that this matters a lot in a lot of big cities, again, like New York, for example, um, where the number of housing permits really, um, it's quite a substantial deviation. Um, and we see that most metro ma major metro areas are simply building less housing. There is something going on. Now, looking at some of the academic literature, um, Van Vanessa's paper from a couple of years ago notes how rising land use regulation is associated with rising home prices in 44 of 50 states. Um, and rising real average home uh, and rising zoning regulation in particular is associated in 36 states. Now, of course, associated isn't causation, but there does appear to be something going on. And that's, of course, not the same, not, not the only paper to find that. Um, Glazer, in a recent paper, also found a similar thing about how land use regulation is associated with far more regulated housing markets. And importantly, there is a big correlation between the income of the homeowners there. And that has high implications for things they found like mobility and inequality and GDP growth. They, the, their quote here is that changing the housing supply regulation in just three highly constrained markets, New York, San Francisco, and San Jose, showed a 9% rise in aggregate GDP because in per their models at least, there are massive shifts in employment location, people moving to these very attractive cities. Now, another paper by Vanessa and the Joint Economic Committee from last year, not merely uh, GDP growth that matters. Land use regulation affects education and educational choices where school zoning and reg residential zoning can, can has it can be can affect the type of education and the access to a good education in the public school system. Uh, also, fiscal policies where federal housing policies are concentrated in restrictively regulated states. But I, you know, construction costs matter too. So other papers have shown that construction costs in a lot of places. So leaving aside the very high cost cities, construction costs are very much. Uh, a driver in other places, particularly in the in the suburbs and other areas, um, and that's still true as of the latest uh, the update of this analysis in 2018. So you can see that you just here's a little idea of what we mean by house construction costs. Well, there's labor and materials and permitting and site work and all of this kind of jazz. Well, there are a lot of state, federal, and local policies that affect simple building costs. Let's start with federal policies on materials. Well, I'm a trade guy, so I, I would, no presentation of mine would be complete without looking at trade costs. Well, we have restrictions on imports of construction materials under all sorts of different laws, whether it's uh, our trade remedies laws, any dumping and countervailing duty laws. And a lot of these measures have been tied to significant US price increases. These costs are borne typically by 
consumers, meaning you and me, meaning house, uh, house home builders and the rest. And in a lot of cases, these duties can exceed 100% in many cases. Now, there are more limited restrictions on cross-border services, but of course, we have immigration restrictions that can also play a role here. Um, as you can see in this list, it's a nice handy chart that I'll, of course, share online later. But this is a, a wide range of tariffs. Essentially, we're tariffing almost everything you need to build a house from the foundation to the roof. Uh, and of course, all of the appliances and fixtures in between. Another area is HUD policy. Uh, a study from a couple of years ago shows how HUD policies, which were lobbied, of course, by a home builder monopoly, subsidize stick built homes and sabotage lower cost factory homes. These are kit homes and so via all sorts of national building codes. And what essentially created a national zoning ordinance, again, inflating the costs outside of big cities. At the state level, we have occupational licensing. Uh, a recent study showed uh, the wide range of licensed services in construction that, that, are, uh, that are, have been licensed. And for residential home services, another recent study found that this li these licensing regulations produce less competition and higher prices, but not any improvement in customer satisfaction. So again, going back to the earlier chart, where labor costs can drive construction costs, these things matter. Outside of those policies, you have other federal policies and, and that can distort prices. A, a, a recent paper from Alan Cole showing that the federal mortgage interest deduction has, uh, is, is associated with significant price increases in major metropolitan areas. And since it has actually been reformed uh, in the recent tax reform law, you actually see in these nice charts show you how that trend has actually reversed since the law has been into place. And then there are other policies to consider. I'm running out of time here, so I'll just mention transit and transportation, things in infrastructure and congestion pricing and the rest, uh, telecommunications. Uh, we had internet problems earlier that certainly will play a role. Um, of course, uh, entitlements, energy, the environment, and the rest. I'm happy to take questions on it as you'd like. Finally, though, look, you know, we're having this normative debate, and, and my question is, should policy really try to predict or dictate where and how Americans want to live? And I think, the, of course, my answer is no. Um, the, the reason, quite simply, is things can change and can change quite dramatically. In 2013, everybody was saying that millennials all wanted to live in the cities and we had to have these big, uh, dense cities. And then all of a sudden, six years later, now millennials are going to the suburbs. And now, of course, with COVID, things could radically shift even more when you have dramatic changes in how people work, how they uh, view density in cities, uh, how they view public transit and other things. And this not only has an effect on residential building, but also commercial building. You see that commercial space that was once considered a high priority for major uh, corporations. Everybody seemed to be moving to Chicago or New York and Amazon, for example, moving to DC and, and well, for, for a few minutes there, uh, New York. Um, now, they, companies might actually be looking to reverse that trend and have satellite offices as people really uh, decide they want to work remotely. 
And my point here is not that everybody wants to live in the suburbs as just as it wasn't everybody wants to live in the cities. Instead, the point here is that nobody really knows what's next. And policy should instead allow people to live where they want and creating, uh, lessening the aforementioned regulations uh, to allow them to do that. So um, that's the end of my presentation. I, I would like to, to, to say one thing, though. You know, Randall mentioned uh, property rights. Um, I think, though, there is a, a question as to whether those are rights or, or rents. Um, you know, the government has over the years provided individuals with all sorts of benefits, whether it's through trade protection or ethanol subsidies or whatever. And as the government reforms those policies, um, is the removal of that protection really uh, the elimination of a right or is it the elimination of a rent? And I'm, and I'm happy to discuss that uh, further uh, in, in the Q&A. So thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks for the shout out, Scott. And thanks to all of our participants for their comments so far. Okay, so we are now going to transition into doing some short rebuttals in the same order that we did the presentations. So you'll each have up to three minutes for your rebuttal and we will begin first with Mr. Beyer. And I think you got to turn your mute off, Mr. Beyer. Sorry about that. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Thank you, Vanessa. And I know that we're uh, limited on time, but I, I had a number of uh, objections that I wanted to bring up with Randall's presentation. So uh, he starts by saying that he doesn't think there's demand for density. I think there's quite a lot, actually. And, you know, the, the two metrics that he often cites are things like the actual settlement patterns, like the number of people who are buying single family homes versus multifamily, and he'll cite things like consumer surveys. But another metric that we could cite, and I think that it would be this would be more useful to an economist, would be prices. Uh, prices signal demand all for things all throughout our economy. And the website Trulia, the real estate site, used to have a really interesting set of maps that they don't publish anymore for one for, for whatever reason, but they were called heat maps. And they, sh they would show the per square foot prices across an entire metro area. And what I generally found, I looked at all those maps for most any major metro, and what I would generally find is that there was a gradient that started with the, the per square foot real estate prices being the highest in the central area and then they generally got lower and lower and lower the further out you went. And that's the way a lot of cities around the world have worked and have always worked. And so that tells me that there actually is quite a, a high demand for living in cities. It might not be the mainstream preference for most Americans, but clearly there's a, a pretty sizable number of people who are willing to pay premiums to live in cities. So that is, I do view that as a form of demand for density. Second point, uh, Randall said he thinks density is already getting built, uh, and he, he cites pictures of multifamily apartments in San Francisco. But the reality is that density is not really getting built. And I'll go ahead and share a slide um, of the, uh, the permits in different metros. And so what this shows is that generally uh, 
metros that we think of as being dense, like Los Angeles, New York City, Boston, San Francisco, have, have had lower permits per 10K residents that between 24 and 2019 than a lot of the Sunbelt cities that build sprawl. So I think that's that's another example of cities that don't uh, cities that are dense and where there's considerable considerable demand for living in them, and yet they do not build adequately. And so I think a third aspect I would and, and I, I'll add to that also that there is a great deal of lobbying by developers to build skyscrapers, and they simply do not happen. All right. Well, Scott, let me give you a quick lesson in economics so you understand why dense housing might be more expensive, but that doesn't mean it's more in demand. Volkswagen makes many different kinds of cars, including the Golf, which it sells for about $20,000, and the Bentley, which it sells for about $200,000. Now, your theory that a higher price means higher demand would imply that Volkswagen should stop making Golfs and just make Bentleys because somebody out there is willing to pay $200,000 for one, so therefore everybody must be. Well, that's simply not true. We know that demand curves are, are sloping uh, so that they're at higher quantities, people are willing to pay lower prices. Lower quantities, people are willing to pay higher prices. My theory is that the low density demand curve is well to the right of the high density demand curve. People would rather live in low density than high density. Grant me that for the moment. Let's look at the supply curves. Because high density housing costs more than low density housing, the high density supply curve is much higher. It costs more to build high density housing. The high density supply curve is above the low density supply curve. As a result, even though low density demand is higher, the cost of the price of high density housing ends up being higher than low density housing. That's because it costs more to build, not because demand is higher. Now, unfortunately, uh, our server crashed as we were closing out this conference and we didn't get a chance to handle all of your questions. So what we've done is we're going to ask the speakers to respond to your questions in writing and we'll post them online. I apologize for the breakdown in the server. We hope this doesn't happen again. Thank you for attending this debate. We hope you found it enlightening.